You're now listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. Your hosts, Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli. And today we're going to discuss how to qualify for the real estate professional status as well as material participation to very important concepts to turning your losses non-passive and using them to offset your W-2 or other active business income and getting massive tax savings. Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to clear a few things up too. I mean, there's a lot of misconception around what is material participation and what are the, the two tests for real estate professional status and how are they intertwined with each other. So hopefully, hopefully we can clear some things up for folks too. Absolutely. So we want to start off with the rules to qualify as a real estate professional status. Well, I actually was thinking that we should start off by explaining again why this is important, just in case. If you haven't already, go listen to the first episode in this series. And if you're just picking this episode up going forward, what Tom and I are going to do is we're going to run series on topics. And the series is going to consist of multiple episodes. So this is episode two of the real estate professional status series. I would highly recommend you check out episode number one, because that's where we talk about the history of real estate professional status and why it was put into place or why section 469, the passive activity rules were put into place. And it'll help you become a better investor. If you understand the history of why things are in place, then you'll be able to make better decisions. But if you listen to that episode, you'll understand why it's so critically important to cross your T's, dot your I's and do this right. And, uh, and the big hint there is that it's heavily litigated. So, so make sure make sure that you do this stuff right. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't want to do it wrong. So why, why is real estate professional status important? Let's start there. Yeah. So the real estate professional status is so important because by default, rental losses or losses generated by rental activities are passive in the tax code under section 469. What that means to you is that they can only offset other passive income and other passive income is generally generated from other rental activities, which are rental activities, again, are passive by default under this section of the tax code and also other businesses in which you don't materially participate in. So that's why it's so important because you can take, if you qualify as a real estate professional, you do it the right way, you can take the losses from your rental activities and use them to offset the income you have from your W-2 job or perhaps an active business. And it can be quite powerful to offsetting your tax liability and having more money that you could spend on whatever you want. Is you know Whether it be investing in other investments or going and buying a, a nice Lamborghini or a Porsche. Um, whatever you want, buying, buying your CPA uh, holiday gift, you know things like that. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. So real estate professional status allows you. You have two buckets of income. You've got passive income and you have non-passive income. Every dollar that you earn falls into one of those two buckets. Every single dollar that you earn falls into one of those two buckets. The passive bucket, if we have rental losses, they're passive by default. So I'm stuck in the passive bucket. And if I have rental losses, they get suspended and carried forward until I die. So I can't just go and claim my rental losses. They get suspended because they're stuck in that passive bucket. So I have to recharacterize them by qualifying as a real estate professional and by materially participating, which we're going to talk about both of those things on today's episode. I have to recharacterize those passive losses and put them into the non-passive bucket. Because in the non-passive bucket is my W-2 income, my business income, dividends, interest, capital gain on stock sale. Pretty much all my income is in that non-passive bucket. So I want to recharacterize the rental activity out of that passive bucket. And I want to recharacterize it as non-passive so that I can claim the rental losses, so that I can run cost segregation studies and accelerate depreciation to build an even larger tax loss and claim it against my W-2 income, my business income, et cetera, et cetera. That's why qualifying as a real estate professional is so important. So let's start off with the statutory tests, the two statutory tests for real estate professional status, then we'll hit material participation. 
So the two statutory tests required to qualify as a real estate professional, the first part is you need to spend at least 750 hours in a real property trader business. And the second part is it must represent more than half of your total working time. Yeah. And so, so we've got a couple of things that we have to break down there. You said 750 hours in a real property trader business uh, in which you materially participate, by the way. So that material participation piece is always there, always present. So 750 hours in a real property trader business in which you materially participate. And then the second test is more than half your time in a real property trader business in which you materially participate. Now, we have to break down a few things. We have to break down what do hours mean? What does real property trader business mean? And what does material participation mean? But before we do, let's look at that second test, more than half your time. What that means is you have to spend more time in real estate activities, real estate trades or businesses, more time in real estate than anywhere else. So if you work a full-time job, 2,000 hours, what does that mean? You'd spend an additional 2,001 hours in real estate. So you're gonna work 4,001 hours during any calendar year. Now I'm opening up my calendar, or not my calendar, my calculator. Let's do 365 times 24 hours. There's 8,760 hours in any year. So if you try to tell the tax court that you worked a full-time job of 2,000 hours and you want to meet that second test, so you worked an additional 2,001 hours, you're effectively working a 12-hour day every single day for 365 days. No holidays, no vacations, no sick days. And while I believe that you can probably do it, you know, I've seen some pretty incredible stuff. <laughs> I'm an optimist. The problem is the tax court will never believe it. They will not believe it. Yeah, How can you them. possibly work 12 hour days every single day, nonstop? Very, very difficult to achieve and even harder to substantiate, which is the reason why out of 500 tax court cases, there's only been one case and there's some extraordinary circumstances in which this individual is able to qualify as a real estate professional while working a full-time yeah. job. Which we'll go over. Yeah. And I know that our physicians out there, our nurses out there, our investment bankers out there going, well, I work 12-hour days nonstop. 100%. I, I'm with you. I get it. I run a business. Tom runs a business. We also work 12-hour days nonstop every single day. No holidays, Christmas included. The problem is, is the tax court is never going to believe it. That's the problem. You, you, when you show up in tax court, you have to be able to prove that you're credible. And that is extremely difficult to do if you also work a full-time job. Meeting that second test, more, than, more time in real estate than my full-time job is extremely hard to do. I actually don't believe, I'm not aware of a tax court case where somebody with a full-time job has actually won. I know that the Miller case, maybe is the one you were referencing, that he had a part-time job. He had a full, he was paid a full-time wage, but he only worked about 900 hours in his job because he was piloting boats. Um, so, so he got audited because he had a full-time wage and he was claiming real estate professional status. Uh, but he ended up winning because he had great records. He had people testify to his incredible work ethic, and he was able to show that he indeed spent more time in real estate than he did at his W two job. So it can be done. But if you're working a full-time job, it's going to be tough. We're going to go over some tax court cases here in a minute uh, just to kind of hammer this home. And everything that we say, by the way, you know, I, I know part of why we're doing this podcast on real estate professional status, part of why we changed this up is I talked to a lot of prospects. Tom talks to a lot of prospects, people that want to become our clients. We talked about uh, what, like 80 a week or so, I think is what the yeah, number is. It's a lot. It's a lot. A lot. Of yeah. Which is great, right? We've done a great job just trying to give give information out. And so we are very blessed to have so many landlords wanting to come on and potentially be a client of ours. And we talked to all these folks and, and the people that want to be real estate professionals, it's always so funny talking to them because they uh, sometimes they're very aggressive. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, I'm going to be a real estate professional, whether you like it, Mr. CPA or not. And then we have to go, but that's not how it works. And I finally got so fed up trying to defend my position, which is not even my position. It's just the tax court's position. <laughs> it's just like, okay, you know what? I'm going to write this 12,000 word guide. You can go check that out. www.therealestatecpa.com. Click education, click guide to real estate professional status, 38 pages or something like that. You can download it, take it with you to read it at night, whatever you want to do. 
but that has all the citations. It's a great guide. We did that. And then, and then tax and legal summit, I did this whole thing on real estate professional status. And now we're here again, talking about real estate professional status on the podcast, because people don't want to hear what they need to hear. They want to hear what they want to hear. I can't tell you how many people we've talked to that have full-time jobs that go, oh, well, I spend more time in real estate. I'm like, dude, you could, you could, but the tax court's not going to buy it. That's the problem. It's not me. I I don't, I mean, whatever, (laughs) but the tax court is not going to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what it is? It's, you know, there's a lot of people out there who want the rules to be what they want it to be. And, uh, it's, it's hard, it's hard not to blame them because you know, this is, this this is a lot of money we're playing with here. However, the facts are, is the rules are not what you want them to be. The rules are what they are. And, uh, they're reinforced through tax court cases. And if you want to do this, there's the right way to do this. And there's the wrong way to do this. And you want to do this the right way because there's a lot of money at stake. And if you are, God forbid, ever faced with an audit, you want to be able to protect yourself by having everything. You want to have your ducks in a row. And we, we have work with our clients like they are going to get audited on real estate professional status. And, you know, the chances are low. Even when you claim real estate professional status, the chances are low, but we work with our clients to make sure that they are protected. And sometimes that means telling people, telling prospects, yeah, you're just never going to qualify. And then when we qualify, they go, oh, you're, you're just too conservative. I do, I'm not conservative. I've just read all the tax court cases. <laughs> I know how this thing works. That's the difference. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff today because I want you to walk away from this podcast going, wow, this is how it actually works. Real estate professional status is not that gray. People that sell it to you, like if you go to an education platform, if you go to another CPA and they tell you, oh, it's so gray, run, <laughs> run away because they they do not understand it well enough to advise you. Real estate professional status is not that gray. The reason it's not that gray is because it's so heavily litigated and we have tons of tax court cases. We have literally hundreds of tax court cases that's unheard of in tax code sections, but we have hundreds of tax court cases specifically on real estate professional status that provide us with guidance. Yeah. And you know, something else too, um, you know, that may differ for us from other people out there who talk about the real estate professional status is that we've actually seen audits. You know, people come to us with audits and we're seeing, you know, what's winning audits and what's not winning audits. So this is not something we're just making up. This is real stuff. And the stuff really happens. Audits really do take place in real life. And yeah, uh, in episode four is going to talk about audits, what we see, how the IRS audits you. Um, After we wrote that guide last year, that 12,000 word real estate professional status guide, we started getting a lot of requests to defend people during in, in the middle of audits. And Unfortunately, if you make the request in the middle of an audit, it's probably too late is what we have found out. But uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. So let, let's step off the soapbox. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for listening to us rant for five, five to 10 minutes, however long that was. Um, it's, just, it's just something that we're passionate about. And I'm tired of seeing taxpayers get screwed by bad advice, by bad advice. And the sad thing is that a lot of these people are claiming real estate professional status and they have no clue that five years from now, they're going to get a really nasty letter in the mail and it's going to be chock full of penalties. And they're going to lose that audit every single time. And that's what we have discovered with these audits that we've been pulled into. It's the exact same situation. Five years later, they get pulled, or three years later, I guess, they get pulled and they lose. They, they lose because they didn't do a good job up front. They were recording the wrong time. So, so the two statutory tests for real estate professional status, you have to spend 750 service hours in a real property trade or business in which you materially participate. That's test one. Test two, more time in real estate than anywhere else. So let's break this down. Personal service hours, real property trade or business, material participation. Let's start with real property trades or businesses. There are 11 real property trades or businesses. This is defined in section 469 C7 cap C. When I say cap C, that just means big C. So C7 cap C says there are 11 real property trades or businesses and they are real property development, redevelopment, construction, reconstruction, acquisition, conversion, rental, operation, management, leasing, or brokerage trades or businesses. So those are the 11. Now, you might be going, well, what do all those mean? Uh, and whenever, the, the way that the code works, so that, that was the actual IRS code. They're not the IRS code, sorry, that's an awful, that's an awful mistake. <laughs> internal Revenue Code, the IRS doesn't have a code. The Internal Revenue Code, the IRC section 469. So that's, that's coming out of the Internal Revenue Code. And then what happens is Treasury puts out regulations to further explain the code, to break it down a little bit. 
So the code just says, here are the 11 real property trades and businesses. But if you want to learn a little bit more about what those real property trades and businesses are, you go to Treasury Reg section 1.469-9B2. It explains real property development, real property redevelopment, real property operation, real property management. And when you are reading these examples, what you find is that you really need to be involved in the day-to-day operations. So like a lot of people, a lot of our clients will go, well, I operate my rental properties, but you need to be involved in the day-to-day. Same thing with real property management. Oh, I manage my rental properties. But if you have a property manager, they are the real property management, not you. They're running the real property management business. So I would recommend going to that treasury reg. You can literally Google it. You just type in treasury regulation section 1.469-9. It'll take you right there. You scroll down to paragraph two uh, or B2, and you can read about the different trades or businesses there. Awesome. Don't do that while you're driving. If you're driving, keep driving, yeah, keep your eyes on the road, um, take a mental note and look at that later. Unless you have a Tesla, I guess. It's, it's, it's yeah, I mean, these days you see these YouTube videos on Teslas, people driving like no hands and like sleeping. people are sleeping yeah. on the way to work. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Anyway, so we just talked about a real property trader business. Now, the important thing about real property trader business, before I, I'll, I'll kick it over to Tom here in a second to talk about personal service hours, and then we'll hit material participation together. So, so the 11 real property trades or businesses, what if I run my rentals and I'm a real estate agent? Those are two separate real property trades or businesses. One's rental, one's brokerage. What if that happens? Well, For the purposes of the 750-hour test, you get to combine the time that you spend in all of the real property trades or businesses that you materially participate in. So if I materially participate in my rentals, if I materially participate as a real estate agent, I get to count the time together. So maybe I spend 500 hours in my rentals and 300 hours as a real estate agent, 800 hours spent in a real property trader business in which I materially participated. So I meet the 750-hour test. So you can group your real property trades or businesses together for the purposes of hitting the 750 hour test. Absolutely. Now to actually prove material participation, you need to meet one of seven tests. I'm going to list them all out here and then we'll focus on the three that actually matter to most people. Okay. So the first material participation test is the individual spends at least 500 hours on the activity in in one year. The second one is the individual's activity constitutes substantially all of the material participation. So meaning you do pretty much everything We'll get maybe into that a little bit more detail in a second. Um, The individual participates in the activity for at least 100 hours during the year, and no one else participates more than them. And then we have a few other ones. These ones, people, you know, don't apply to many people, especially when you're just starting out in real estate. Uh, The activity is a significant participation activity, and the individual aggregates the participation in all of these activities exceeds 500 hours. Basically, the 500-hour test, but you aggregate things together. We'll talk about that more later. The individual participating in the activity for any five out of the last 10 taxable years immediately preceding the taxable year in play, right? Uh, The activity is a personal service activity and the individual materially participated in the personal service activity for any three of the preceding taxable years. Or this is the one that maybe the gray area, if there is a gray area, based on all facts and circumstances, the individual participates in the activity on a regular, continuous, and substantial basis. Regular, continuous, substantial basis. So what are the three tests that are most common that that everybody listening should know? Yeah, the three tests that are most common are the individual participates in the activity for at least 500 hours during the year. The individual's activity constitutes almost all of the activity, so substantially all. And then the individual participates for more than 100 hours during the taxable year, and no one else spends more time than them. Yeah. So the material participation tests that matter to the listeners, 500 hours, or you only have to meet one of these, right? So it's not and, it's all ors, 500 hours, or your time is substantially all the participation, meaning you did all the work. Nobody else really participated in the activity. Um, And well, 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 we'll go into those in a second. 500 hours, substantially all, or 100 hours and more than any one other person. So the real estate professional tests are 750 hours and more than half your time. Those are the two real estate professional status tests. If you qualify as a real estate professional, your rentals are still passive because section 469 says your rentals are passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional. But it also says that any trade or business that you don't materially participate in is passive. 
So just qualifying as a real estate professional does not help my, I mean, it helps, but it's not going to make my rentals non-passive in and of itself. I also have to materially participate. So I also have to hit one of these material participation tests. Exactly. So, you know, if you're working, for example, if you're an agent or you're a broker and you're a full-time agent or broker, chances are you're spending more than 750 hours in that business and you're going to go ahead and qualify as a real estate professional, but that doesn't mean anything. Like Brandon just said, unless you could prove the material participation test on your rental activities, because if you don't prove material participation on the rental activities themselves, then those are still passive activities, despite the fact that you are indeed a real estate professional. So this is, it is a two-pronged test. There's a two-pronged test here, or there's two parts really of the real estate professional stats that you need to pay attention to. It's first qualifying as a real estate professional, which again is 750 hours in a real property trader business at least 750 hours and more than half your total working time. But that doesn't necessarily mean just because you did that, that you're going to be able to take the losses against your rental properties, unless you can prove that you materially participated in the rental activities themselves. Oh my gosh. Nothing makes your CPA cry harder during tax season to find out that you qualify as a real estate professional, but you, you didn't materially participate in your rentals. <laughs> so your rentals are still passive. We can't recharacterize them the non-passive if you don't materially participate in your rentals. Uh, exactly. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. <laughs> but the good news is if you all you have is a rental business, like that's all you have, and you got the 750 hours purely materially participating in your rental business itself, you're in the clear because you have 750 hours and you materially participate in your rentals. But that's not always the case. Like I said, if you're an agent or you're a flipper or you're, you're a broker or maybe you're a developer, if you just get that 750 hours solely from those businesses, that's all well and good. But you also need to be able to prove the material participation again on the rentals. And that's, that's I think, the key point uh, that we're trying to make here is that you have to do that component in order to turn your rentals non-passive. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing too, though, is that you can count your spouse's time for material participation purposes, right? You or your spouse... You have to hit real estate professional status. Those two tests, 750 hours, more than half your time. You have to hit that completely on your own. But for the purposes of material participation, you can count your spouse's time. So maybe you are a full-time real estate agent and you hit the 750 hour test. Real estate agents, all you do. So you also hit more than half your time. So you're a real estate professional being a full-time real estate agent, but you don't spend any time managing your rentals. Maybe you just hate you know, dealing with tenants. You just don't want to do it. Your spouse though, they go and they self-manage the rentals for you. Well, you've qualified as a real estate professional and now you get to count your spouse's time for the purposes of material participation in the rental activities. So you could also materially participate even though you haven't touched the rentals. Your spouse does all the work. So the moral of the story is outsource the rental management to your spouse. Yeah, so I, so <laughs> you I kick so back I, on I, the weekends, hang out, do nothing. <laughs> So I think what you're saying, Brandon, is that the you have that one spouse independently has to reach at least 750 hours and more than half the total working time. That the one spouse has to do that without counting the other the spouse's hours at all. Yep. Yep. And then collectively, for the purposes of material participation, the 500 hours, substantially all, 100 or more than anyone else, for the purposes of hitting one of those three tests, you can collectively count your time, you and your spouse collectively. So one spouse can spend 100 hours, the other spouse can spend 400 hours. And as long as one spouse independently hit the real estate professional status tests, then the spouses can combine their 400 and 100 hours to hit the 500 hour test for material participation. All right. One more time, just to be clear. So what you're telling me is that if I get married, I can't spend 375 hours in a real property trader business. And then my spouse, my wife can't spend $375 in a real uh, 375 hours. <laughs> I wish it was that easy. 375 hours in a real property trader business, combine them together for 750 and then call ourselves real estate professionals. That's right. not possible is what you're telling me. Right. Spouse has to, one spouse has to hit it completely on their own. And then collectively, for material participation, you can combine hours. The other thing for material participation too is that you have to materially participate in each activity separately. So what does that mean? Well, each rental activity is its own activity. So let's say that you're aiming for the 500 hour test. So you know your CPA says the safe harbor is 500 hours, hit that and you're good. So you have 10 rentals. What does that mean? Well, I have to spend 500 hours in every single one of those rentals separately. So 10 rentals, 5,000 hours. And we did a calculation 
earlier in this episode that, you know, even 4,000 hours is 12 hour days. So 5,000 hours, probably 13, 14 hour days. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. Well, I mean, the good news is though, that you can actually, if you qualify as a real estate professional, use what's called the dash nine election as it's referred to, to actually aggregate all of your rental activities together as essentially one activity for the purposes of these material participation tests. So what does that mean? You know, for example, if you're trying to qualify using 500 hours, 500 hours, that's the material participation test you're aiming for, which is, by the way, the best one to aim for for many reasons. And we'll maybe talk about that later. Um, you don't have to spend 500 hours on rental property A and rental property B separately or C and D, et cetera. You can combine all of those together and just hit 500 hours on your aggregate portfolio, which makes it a lot less of a hurdle to overcome when you're trying to reach this status. Yeah, we'll talk about strategies next episode where you can use that 9G election. And that that election is found in Treasury Regulation Section 1.469-9G. That's where that election is, the the election to aggregate all interests in rental real estate. Um, It has to be rental real estate, though. So short-term rentals, if if you listen to any of our stuff on short-term rentals, you know that a short-term rental is not considered rental real estate under Section 469 typically, if it meets that seven-day exception. So what does that mean? Well, if I make this 9G election, I cannot group in my short-term rentals with my long-term rentals. But one of the strategies that just as a teaser, you, know, you, you can make this 9G election and you can group in all your syndication investments. So I go plop $100,000 into a syndicate. They're investing in multifamily. They do a cost segregation study. They pass me back a $92,000 loss, passive loss. Well, I want to recharacterize that passive loss to the non-passive bucket. So how do I do that? Maybe I buy property locally and I self-manage them. I rehab them and then self-manage them. I rent them out. I don't have a property manager. I hit the 500-hour test. Then I make that 9G election and I aggregate in, group in my syndication investments too. So now that $92,000 is non-passive because my entire portfolio is non-passive. Because when I make that grouping election... I only have one rental activity, even though I might have like 50 rentals for the purposes of the material participation tests. I have one rental activity when I make that grouping election. And some CPAs will tell you there's downsides to making the election. I don't think there's really major downsides there. I mean, there are risks, but uh, they're way overplayed, way overplayed. And we're not going to get into those here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very misunderstood. Very misunderstood. We'll talk about that maybe later. But do you want to go through, Brendan? Do you want to start talking about the hours that actually count towards material participation, specifically towards rental properties? Let's hit the two material participation tests substantially all 100 hours more than anyone else, just so that people understand understand those. And, and before we do, I'll just kind of reiterate that you have two separate groups of tests that you have to meet to make your rentals non-passive. First, you have to qualify as a real estate professional. That's 750 hours, more than half my time. Those are the two tests. Then you have to show that you materially participated by hitting one of the material participation tests, 500 hours, substantially all, or 100 hours and more than anyone else. So let's talk about substantially all real quick. That material participation test says that if you complete substantially all of the participation, so if your participation is substantially all the participation in the activity, you've materially participated. Now, Your participation still has to be regular, continuous, and substantial because that's kind of the baseline for material participation. Uh, So as long as you hit that baseline, regular, continuous, substantial, and your participation is substantially all the participation, then you will have materially participated. So theoretically, theoretically, you can do this with 40, 50, 60 hours of participation each year as long as you're self-managing and as long as you're doing everything yourself. Now, a lot of our clients that invest in short-term rentals, because short-term rentals, you have the same material participation test. They'll ask me, well, I have a cleaning crew that comes in and they spend 35 hours a year. And then I spend 40 hours a year. So I spend 40 hours. My cleaning crew spends 35 hours, collectively 75 hours. Is 40 hours substantially all of the participation when we factor in 70 total hours? The answer is no, it's not. So I fail that test. So if I fail the substantially all test because somebody else is participating, it can be a contractor doing rehab work or repair work. It can be a cleaning crew. It can be a property manager. If somebody else is participating, I fail the substantially all test. And then the next test that I get bumped to is 100 hours 
and more than any one other individual. We take individual to also mean company. So if you have a cleaning crew company that's coming out, then you have to exceed that. In 100 hours or more than anyone else, what that means is like, let's say, let's say Tom and I are partners on a business. Well, we are partners on a business. So, so let, let's say, let, let's bit. say, sorry, Tom, well, let's say that we're partners on like a real estate venture. Um, I know the material participation test and Tom knows the material participation test. So I'm going to sneakily ask Tom to track his time, right? On this real estate venture. And Tom, Tom logs 104 hours. Well, if I want to hit hundred, if I want to do minimum level work and materially participate, what do I need to do? I need to work 105 hours, right? hundred hours and more than Tom. So I work 105 hours. And what are you going to do, Tom? I'm going to work 106. So then I get the credit. I'm <laughs> going to work hours. two more hours in before the end of the year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I'm going to squeeze another two hours in two to get to 107. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, the hundred hour test, the quickest side is hard to, hard to achieve if two partners are trying to make it happen. So just, yeah, yeah. Really tough. And, and so you end up stair stepping up, right? So I work 107, Tom works 108. I work 109, Tom works 110. Then we start fighting about our time locks. So what happens is both partners then aim to hit 500 hours because that's that safe harbor. That's what Tom was kind of talking about. If you just aim for 500 hours, you're good. You don't have to worry about more than anyone else or whatever. Now, real quick on the 100 hours and more than anyone on the other individual, and I guess the substantially all too. When tax court cases come out where taxpayers have said they're materially participating under one of those two tests, substantially all or 100 hours and more than anyone else, the tax court seemingly uses those two tests as a blocker for material participation. And what I mean by that is the tax court always asks how can you substantiate that you spent substantially all the activity or that you spent 100 hours and more than anyone else if you don't have the time logs of the other people that worked on your property? That's what happens in almost every single one of these tax court cases. So the moral of the story is that if you're going to pursue one of those two material participation tests, minimum level effort, material participation tests, which is totally doable. If you're going to pursue one of those two, you need to go and get the time that any other person spends on that property, which is painful. Because <laughs> who, what contractor is going to say, yeah, I spent 10 hours. I mean, it's, it's hard. We have about a 50-50 batting average with this stuff. But reach out to your property manager, reach out to the contractors, reach out to the cleaning crews and ask, hey, I've got to keep this for my tax records. It's a special election I'm making. Can you tell me how much time you spent? cleaning the property, working on the property, whatever, because that will help you understand if you're going to be able to even one, hit those tests. But two, if you get audited and take it to tax court, you've at least got some documentation that says, no, I spent, I spent 160 hours and my, like, my on-site repairman spent 80. And he said he spent 80 because here's the emails that I have that say he spent 80. So if you're going to pursue those two tests, make sure that you get the time that other people spend. At least try to reach out. Don't show up to tax court unprepared. Absolutely. I think if you go all the way back to like Brandon's first episode, or maybe it was, ep yeah, the first episode, documentation is everything. Substantiation is everything. That's the best tax strategy. Documentation. Yeah. That's it. Just document everything. Yeah. Yeah. So 750 hours, more than half your time. Then you've got the three material participation tests that we want you to focus on. So let's talk about time that counts. Absolutely. So we've aggregated a list over time of time that counts between reading the IRS ATG the tax court cases. Before before you jump into that, can I can I actually just kind of talk about the litmus test that we developed real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, cool. So so after reading these a bunch of tax court cases, what you find is that they often say the hours were not integral to the operations. Right. And what we take that to mean, we came up with a simple litmus test for our clients. Um, if the day-to-day -day operations of your rentals are unaffected by the hours that you are logging, then the hours do not count. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It does. You know, at the end of the day, if you, if, if you do not perform those actions and the property still continues to operate unaffected, then how are they really material to the operations of the property at the end of the day? Right. Right. We continue collecting rents. We continue paying bills. Tenants are happy. I'm not participating. My rental's good. Um, so, so use that as a pre-frame for everything that like, like, think about that. If you're listening to this, keep that in the back of your mind, because that's going to be the pre-frame for the next, you know, five, 10 minutes as we talk about hours that count and don't count. 
if the day-to-day operations, so the tax court's going to say integral to your operations, right? If the day-to-day operations of your rentals are unaffected by the hours that you're logging, the hours don't count. And one more preframe for you. There is, for whatever reason, <laughs> a lot of confusion over material participation hours versus real estate professional hours. And we're going to talk about this next episode too with our myths. But um, since, since we're going to talk about hours that count and don't count, I want to also let you know about this. Material participation hours and real estate professional status hours are the exact same thing. If any tax advisor or if any education professional guru, whoever, tells you that you can spend 500 hours materially participating and then you can spend 250 hours of anything else, investor hours, education hours, whatever, because combined, you hit the 750-hour test, right? And you also spent 500 hours materially participating. If you can do that, then you're good to go. That is so wrong. That's just a complete misunderstanding of how the rules work. And I will repeat that statutory test for real estate professional status. You have to spend 750 hours in a real property trader business in which you materially participate. So it's right there. <laughs> you have material participation hours and real estate professional status hours are the exact same thing. Don't fall victim to people that tell you you can spend 500 hours materially participating and then 250 hours of anything else. That is untrue. It's false. And you will lose every single time under audit. Absolutely. And you know what we're going to go through right now, we're going to go through some activities that will generally count as material participation activities if you perform them within your business. Then we'll go through a little bit about what hours don't count. And then we'll talk a little bit about, I think, tax court cases that substantiate what we're telling you here, that we're not just, you know, making this up. You know, we're not just, you know, making this up. It's This is real stuff. So specifically for rental businesses, these are some a list of activities that will generally count as material participation. All right. Showing the property for rent. That's material. If no one's showing the property for rent, how is it going to be rented out, right? Um, taking tenant applications, same thing, really part of the same process, right? Screening tenants, again, this is all on leasing up the property. Preparing and negotiating leases and other rental agreements. Um, then it's cleaning and preparing the units for rent. So that's like the initiation time you're going to spend as you're kind of getting ready to rent out the unit. Doing repairs yourself, obviously, that's material to your business. Tenants don't want to live in a broken unit, trust me. <laughs> Doing improvements yourself or arranging others to do them. Someone's got to do the improvements and someone's got to make sure they actually get coordinated, right? If, if no one coordinates them, the improvements may not happen. So uh, hiring and supervising a resident manager, this, this can get a little bit a little bit dicey with big portfolios, really, really big yeah. portfolios. Don't it's same thing with the material participation and you know, 500 hours, more than 250. The, if you're trying to skirt the rules, you will lose every single time. And here's why. Temporary Reg Section 1469-5TF2I Cap B says, if the principal purpose for the performance of services and logging hours is to avoid limitations under IRC Section 469, then the hours don't count. Okay. So we're going to talk about hours that don't count here in a second. Sorry to jump in, Tom, but I just like, I get passionate about this stuff, man. Like, I know, know, I know, I know. You can't just sit back in your nice warm office and count all the hours that you spend supervising your property manager, unless you're doing this full time, you know, like, like you have such a big portfolio, you've retired and literally supervising your property managers is a full-time job. Cool. We'll count on at that point. You're running the real property trader business. But if you've got five rentals and you've got third-party property management, supervising your property manager is not going to count. I hate to break hearts, but... And also your property manager doesn't want to be supervised. That's why you hire them. So come on, think about this. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this, yeah, it, if you're going to try to go that one, you have to have a pretty sizable portfolio and we're not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. We're going to continue down this rabbit hole instead. And this rabbit hole is what generally counts as material participation on rental properties and kind of to pick up where we left off, um, it's purchasing supplies and materials for your rental business, inspecting the property, responding to tenant complaints and inquiries, collecting, depositing rents, evicting tenants, and then writing and placing advertisements and maintaining a website. So again, it's the marketing part of actually attracting tenants to your property. If no one knows your property exists, they're not going to go and lease it from you because they don't know it exists. So sounds if, a lot like property management to me, all the stuff that you just listed out. One could say that. One could say that. I would, I would have to agree. It's hard, hard not to agree with that. Sounds like it's a property management. 
Sounds um, like property management. Yeah. And this is where we break hearts because people go, this, this is where in the sales conversations that we have, people get mad at us. They'll be like, well, you just don't, you're just too conservative. I'm like, dude, I'm not, we're not conservative. We, we just read all the tax court cases. We, we know how this works. Yeah. And you know, from, from a practical standpoint, this is where people get annoyed because they want real estate to be passive, yeah. right? They want it to be passive and I don't blame you, right? You're doing, you have a full-time job or you're running another business. You don't want to have to deal with another headache of running another business, right? So you want it to be passive. You want to delegate that responsibility to a property manager. Well, guess what? Well, then it's going to become a passive activity. So that is, I think, a... This is just where people have to be careful. And you know what? This is good. Just business advice in general. Just always be careful hearing, like, like don't fall victim to hearing what you want to hear. You need to hear what you need to hear to be a great business person, just in general. Don't fall victim to just hearing what you want to hear, hearing what people, what you want people to tell you. Like, like people want us to tell them education and research time counts, investor time counts, supervising your property manager counts. And because exactly what Tom just said, because that makes real estate super easy, super passive. But these rules were not written in a way to make it passive for you. These rules were written to say, if you are legitimately non-passive, then you can count your rentals as non-passive. And that's a lot more effort. We want you to walk away from this podcast, hearing what you need to hear to qualify as a real estate professional. Absolutely. You know, and, and we, we covered the, why this was put in place on the first episode. Um, and it was put in place so that Basically, the passive activity rules are put in place so that you can't take losses from activities which you don't materially participate in, and they don't right. want to make it easy for you. That's the entire point of Section 469, pretty much. So kind of going along the same lines now we're getting to, we just covered a few minutes ago what hours do count, generally speaking. Now let's talk a little bit about what hours don't count, okay? Education hours generally do not count. So if you're listening to this podcast here, doesn't count. <laughs> Sorry to break your heart. Um, if you're reading books, doesn't count for the most part. Um, and there's, if you're going through a lot of courses, training seminars, and you don't already own a rental property business, and it's, you can't be able to prove how those courses or seminars are going to materially impact the operations of your business, then those aren't going to count either. So if you want to just put it to you this way, and we have tax court cases. I think just to cap that off, we're going to dive into some tax court cases here in a second, but just to cap off what Tom was saying, the, the three buckets of time that will not count, that the IRS believes will not count, and that the tax court typically agrees, investor-level hours, which I'll explain in a second, education and research hours, and travel time. Those are the three buckets of hours that are typically not going to count. And they're not going to count because, again, remember the litmus test. If the hours don't affect the day-to-day -day operations of your rentals, then the hours are not going to count. So how can education and research affect the day-to-day -day operations of rentals that you currently have? It's typically not going to happen. Same thing with investor-level hours. Same thing with travel time, if it's infrequent travel, which we'll talk about in a second. So let's start with the, the investor-level hours. Investor-level hours are time spent in an investor capacity where you're not involved in the day-to-day -day operations. If you are involved in the day-to-day -day operations, then investor-level hours do count. Now, if you have a property manager on your properties, managing your properties, then you're at the investor level hours. You're not involved in the day-to-day -day operations. So these hours are not going to count. Investor level hours are studying, reviewing, and monitoring financial statements, preparing summaries of financial statements or operations, bookkeeping, preparing taxes, paying bills, reviewing financials, organizing records. That's everything that has nothing to do with the actual property management, right? So there's a tax court case, W.A. Barniscus, that details this. Um, and then there's actually quite a few other, that was the first one. There's quite a few other cases that cite that one uh, saying that these investor level hours don't count. Education research hours also don't count. We have half a poor versus commissioner. Most of the time logged in that tax court case included research and education hours. Uh, tax court denied real estate professional status, citing the fact that these hours are not material participation hours. We have Padilla versus commissioner. Most of the hours are research hours. In that tax court case, the taxpayer Padilla had a bunch of properties locally and the taxpayer was doing a bunch of underwriting and research of foreclosure properties that were in the same geographic area. Tax court said, yes, yeah, sorry, the research hours that you're doing right now don't actually impact the day-to-day -day operations of your current rentals. And we've got one more tax court case that I always like bringing up. It's Levitz versus commissioner. Taxpayer deducted thirty-five dollars to $40,000 worth of travel and education expenses, went to a bunch of seminars, included all that time in their time log. I think, I think even had some online education 
tax court ruled these activities were not considered material participation in a real property trader business, not integral to the operations of the activity. So you've got three tax court cases right there that back up what we're saying. So here's the thing, right? If anybody tells you that education and research time counts, I hope that you walk away from this podcast saying, I need to ask them for a citation. Because if you find one, I would love to see it. (laughs) Because our clients will be thrilled. They will be like, oh my God, we'll be thrilled. I'll be thrilled. That'd be great. great. My wife will be doing a ton of education. (laughs) (laughs) So so if you can find find a tax court case, seriously though, like like when when you talk to people about this stuff, if it differs from what you hear on this podcast, or any of the stuff that we put out, any of the written materials that we put out, ask for a citation. And when you ask for citations, people get, you know, like, oh, you're you're challenging my my authority and it gets a little weird. But it's important to protect yourself. And if somebody's gonna tell you that education research time counts, that investor time counts, that travel time counts, ask for a citation. Ask for a citation. Because if you don't have citations, how can you be making that claim? That's the entire idea. And you need to protect your investments including your tax investments that you're making. Every time that you prepare taxes, you're making an investment in a tax preparer. You need to make sure that they know what they're doing. That last bucket was travel time. So the IRS audit technique guide, the IRS always takes the position travel time does not count. And the IRS audit technique guide, which we'll go over in episode four of this series, they say that travel time does not count, but the tax court has ruled both ways. So this is the one gray area that I will say is still gray as it pertains to real estate professional status, travel time. But the tax court has ruled both ways. So in one tax court case, lay versus commissioner, the taxpayer was short of the hour requirements to hit 750 hours. Tax court thought that the taxpayer was extremely credible, realized through the trial that the taxpayer did not record any of the transportation time, the travel time. But here's the thing though, the taxpayer in that tax court case, all the rentals were local and the taxpayer was traveling to them on a daily basis. So the tax court said, hey, that's an integral piece of your operations. If you didn't do the travel, your rentals would fail. So we're gonna let you count the travel time. Once they recalculated it with the travel time, they hit the 750 hour test, they were good to go. But in other tax court cases, one more recently, Lucero versus commissioner came out in September, 2020. Tax court ruled that traveling to your rentals infrequently six to eight times a year that travel time does not count, especially if the travel is a couple hundred miles away. So be careful with travel time, log it, but be careful depending on it to hit the 750 hour test. And by the way, one quick point of clarification here, just because your time doesn't count for real estate professional status doesn't mean that you don't have a business expense because I can take education I can go to the seminars. I can go to the networking events. I can go and do the travel. And all of that might be business deductible, but it's not going to be a real estate professional status hour. And the reason that you can have it that way is because section 469 is like its own little world. And it doesn't really impact other sections. I mean, it does, but it doesn't really impact other sections in that way. So I can still have, I can still deduct my travel. I can still deduct my cost of education as long as it's a legit business expense. But I can't count the time towards real estate professional status. Absolutely. Got to watch out for those areas. Log it just so you have it for your records, but disregard it when you're calculating your hours and assume it doesn't count. Probably the best path to take. And if one day you are ever found in a position where you have to put your evidence, your substantiation up to the test, um, you know, be good. Have a really good narrative for why you think that travel time should count. But again, I wouldn't, uh, I would not rely on that. Yeah. So let's just do a quick recap. So to qualify as a real estate professional, you have to spend 750 hours and more time in real estate than anywhere else. 750 service hours in a real property trader business in which you materially participate. So qualifying as a real estate professional simply allows you to overcome the presumption, the default rule that your rentals are passive. Then you have to materially participate in your rentals. And there's seven tests for material participation, but the three tests that we most often see met are 500 hours, Um, substantially all. So your participation, substantially all the participation or 100 hours more than anyone else. One of those three. So you qualify as real estate professional, 750, more than half your time. Then you have to hit one of those three material participation tests on your rental specifically. And then your rentals have successfully been recharacterized from passive to non-passive. We went over the time that counts towards material participation and real estate professional status, because remember, 
Material participation and real estate professional status hours are the exact same thing. There is no difference. No difference at all. People get tripped up because they think, oh, I can just hit the 500-hour material participation test. And then I just have 250 more hours to clear. So that could be education, research, investor-level time. But we just went over why investor-level time doesn't count, why education research time doesn't count, and why travel time doesn't count with tax court cases. So there you have it. So that, that's, that's the time that counts. Those are the statutory tests. I want to touch base on a couple tax court cases because I think that the next piece of this is understanding how to log your time and not blowing yourself up in an audit <laughs> in a way that's not going to blow up in an audit, I should say. Um, and what we, what we find from a lot of the tax court cases is that people, this is the whole, again, don't fall victim to what you want to hear. Hear what you need to hear to win the IRS audit. That's what we want you to walk away from this podcast knowing. Because a lot of these tax court cases, it's laughable what people put down for their time. So let's go over some of these. I've got one right here, Hassanapur versus Commissioner, 2013 tax court case. Um, taxpayer was a full-time employee, so worked a full-time W-2 job. The employer records showed that that person had logged 1,936 hours at their W-2 job. So what does that mean? Well, that means that they have to spend more time in real estate, more than 1,936 hours in real estate. The taxpayer argued, however, in tax court, that the employer records were inaccurate <laughs> and that, that they actually only worked 1,610 hours during the year. Okay, so let, let's like just pause there for a second and let's think about this. This taxpayer is going to lose in one of two ways, potentially in both ways. <laughs> I, Someone's lying. He's lying. They're lying to somebody. They're lying. Yeah, to right. yeah. I, you know, Tom, you're, you're a partner in this business now. So, I mean, you're an employer. And uh, I don't know how happy you would be to find out that somebody was lying on their time log. <laughs> I would not be happy at all. Yeah, it's not, not a very good look. Not a very good look. So this, so this guy, so this taxpayer says, yeah, I only spent 1,610 hours. What I told my employer is actually not true. And then they said that they spent 1,800 hours. It's like 1,850 hours working on their 28 rentals. So he did have a big portfolio. Tax court, however, sided with the IRS, said, yeah, sorry. Unfortunately, what you're telling us is just not credible. There were errors in the time log. The calendar, so, so this person didn't keep a time log, like not on like Excel or anything like that. They kept a calendar, which is fine. Uh, you need to be able to log your time either with a time log or a calendar on an ongoing basis. But here's what happened. So the taxpayer submits to evidence a calendar for the 2008 tax year, but the calendar is copyrighted 2009. <laughs> so what does that mean? Well, it means that the taxpayer in 2009 retroactively added all of their time to create a 2008 calendar. And when that happens, it just counts against you because it yeah, just counts you against you. Credibility. credibility. You lose credibility. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. lost credibility. I mean, this person already, if you look at it, you know, my, in my opinion, they lost credibility by lying in some way they were lying. And when you lose credibility, uh, you're going to lose. Right. And when they start sniffing out the fact that you're not a credible person, they're going to start looking for things in your time log that support that. And a 2009 copyright on a 2008 calendar is one of those things. So the tax court sided with the IRS. Uh, Escalante versus commissioner. This is my favorite tax court case, mainly because it's the most comedic. Uh, the, it, in Escalante, it was a teacher. The taxpayer was a teacher. So had summers off. They only recorded time from opening bell to closing bell. Okay. Now, I don't know if you know any teachers and you being you, Tom, or any listener. Uh, I don't know any teachers, but I will say that, well, I, I only know one teacher. And that was the teacher that I lived with in DC. I lived in her basement. I was renting her basement out for a short period of time when I was moving up to DC to start my career at PricewaterhouseCoopers. And all I remember is that she would come home at like six and she would have dinner for an hour, um, talk with her husband. And then from like seven to 10 PM, she would grade papers every night. And I looked at her and I was just like, I, and I would have several conversations there. I was just like, man, I get it. Why teachers are so underpaid because they do all this extra work that 
people don't see, people don't appreciate. And I walked out of that rental situation going, I have a newfound respect for teachers. Sure enough, years later, Escalante versus Commissioner comes out where this teacher only records opening bell to closing bell time as their W-2 work job time, right? Which obviously is not true if you know any teachers. They work their butts off. So tax court knows that too. They don't live in a bubble. But the reason that this is a comedic tax court case and, and why we laugh every single time that we, <laughs> that we listen to this or that we read this one, um, taxpayer listed a 25-hour day on their time log. How many hours are it a day? <laughs> there's only 24 hours in a day. At least, hours. Oh at least on the planet I live on, there's only 24 <laughs> hours a day. 25-hour day, folks. That's Again, if you're trying to prove that you're a credible person, maybe don't list a 25 hour day. Maybe don't list a 24 hour day either because that would be extremely difficult to do. But anyway, so the prosecuting attorney, they have this on the record. Prosecuting attorney asks the taxpayer about their 25 hour workday and taxpayer says, quote, well, I guess it was a big day. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of, of my cousin Vinny a little bit. Uh, and this is comedic, right? So my cousin Vinny, the guy's making the grits and it takes a certain amount of time to boil water. There's a certain amount of time it takes to boil water. And his excuse was uh, the reason why it took him so little time to boil the water and cook the grits is because he was a good cook. Well, guess what? It wasn't a big day. Okay. There's a, the big day. I mean, I can't believe that was actually said on record. Oh my God. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have to just imagine that at that point, the taxpayer is just like, I know I'm going to lose. So F it. I'm out. Like it doesn't matter. <laughs> but yeah, it's awful. Awful. Um, there's one uh, Lee versus commissioner where two brothers, one of which was an IRS agent, they were logging time. They logged 56 hours to replace a toilet, which, you know, like, 56 hours is a long freaking time. That's like eight hour days. That's what, like seven days? Yeah. You know, you know, man, though, I, I got to be honest, though. Yeah. 56 hours is excessive. Look, I'm an accountant, right? I am not uh, a plumber. I'm not a good handyman. But I could say that I'm just trying to think, man, if I didn't store a toilet, I don't think it would take me 56 hours. That's a lot of time. There's like two full, like, day. it's full. It's, it's multiple days. I mean, it, that's, uncre that's incredible. That's pure. Story. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's seven, eight hour days. That's seven, eight hour days. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. Maybe it takes you one day. Maybe it takes you one eight hour day because you're an accountant, right? So you got to yeah. order it. You got to watch your YouTube videos, try to figure out how the, how the heck to install this thing. And and then maybe you experience some like messes or stuff. I, one, I would just never even install a toilet myself because that yeah. doesn't seem. <laughs> but whatever. But definitely not going to take you 56 hours. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this all comes down to the material participation thing, though. You know, if, if you want to materially participate, you know, installing the toilet will help you get to those hours. That's but true. If spending ex logging excessive hours, that is going to is going to knock your credibility because, yeah. again, these task court people, you know, the judges and what have you, they don't live in a bubble. They're going to sit there and they're going to think to themselves, well, 56 hours. And they're going to say, no way would it even take me 56 hours to do, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's wild. Yeah. So their time log also include also included 280 hours to do their bookkeeping on three rental properties. Folks, if it takes you 280 hours to do bookkeeping on three rental properties, please come talk to us. You, you should not be doing that. I mean, that's like, that's way too much time. It takes me maybe 30 minutes at the end of the year to do my bookkeeping for my entire year per property, per rental property. I have a three-unit property and a single-family home, and I used to have another three-unit property. It takes me 30 minutes. It's not that hard. Yes, maybe I'm an accountant. So I'll give, I'll throw, if you're listening to this and you go, ah, well, you're an accountant. That's not fair. Sure. I'll give you another two hours. It's not going to take you 280 hours. All you need to do is just set up a bank account, have all of your rents and all of your expenses related to that property, go through that bank account. At the end of the year, you export it. You're on a pivot table. Boom, you're done. It's not going to take you 280 hours to do the books. That's definitely excessive. Same tax court case as the 56 hours to replace the toilet. And we also had in the same tax court case, 24 hours to replace blinds, blinds. I mean, installing blinds are hard, but it's not yeah. I mean, I mean, the, I you, could, you could just tell everything that this person was doing though was just everything you add on there just knocks their credibility lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. Yep, yep, yep. That's what the tax court basically cited. It's just you're not credible. We can't believe you. So too bad. There's another tax court case: Hairston versus Commissioner. All of the tasks no matter how trivial, took one hour to perform. I believe this was the tax court case where the taxpayer was writing checks and each check took an hour to write. <laughs> I don't even know how that could even happen. I don't even know. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's excessive. And um, the tax court judge 
basically said, look, we, we don't live in a bubble. We have to apply our own life experiences. And in my life, it does not take an hour to write a check is essentially what kind of came across there. But yeah, it, it, that, that, was, that was another interesting one. And another one, this is another one that I love to bring up. It's also relatively comedic. This is Hafapur versus Commissioner. Uh, it's a 2012 tax court case. And in Hafapur versus Commissioner, so Hafapur is the education one that ruled out education as being material participation hours. But in Hafapur, the logs were inflated. So Hafapur, the, the taxpayer logged time to review and send emails. And the tax court, you know, again, once the tax court starts finding that you're not credible, they're going to look for additional things to point that out. And so in their ruling, they pointed out the fact that the taxpayer logged an hour to review an email that said, hi, Alicia, I'm your loan processor and will be your main contact person from this point on. I received a FedEx package you sent back. I will review it and prepare the file for my underwriter to review. I will update you with the status within three business days. Now, that took us maybe 20 seconds to read. <laughs> but the taxpayer in this tax court case reported an hour to review that email. And they also reported spending two hours sending the following email. Hi, Janet. We have met with our tax accountant. We are ready to proceed. Please let me know what we need to do. Now, I think that even the slowest typing, single you know, finger pecking person is not going to spend two hours to send that email. So you have to make sure that that your time is credible. You also have to make sure that your time log matches your credit card statements. Why? Because in poor Mirze versus commissioner, this 2018 tax court case, the taxpayer reconstructed their time log under audit. And the tax court found that the time log showed that the taxpayer was working on rentals on the same day that the taxpayer's credit card statements showed the taxpayer traveling in London or in Europe. I don't know if it was London specifically, but it was in Europe. So think about that, right? The tax court pulls credit card statements and says, wait, the credit card statements here say that you are in Europe on this Saturday that your time log says that you're at the rental performing repairs. What gives? So you got to make sure that your paper trail aligns as well. But there is some positive news. The Miller versus Commissioner case, that's the one that Tom had brought up a, a while back. A full-time boat pilot, he had six rentals. But even though he was full-time, he only piloted about 900 hours. So he was able to substantiate that he spent more time in real estate than he did as, as a boat pilot. And he won. Tax court sided with him. Um, Birdsong versus commissioner. Taxpayer failed to keep a time log, but testified credibly in tax court to the extensiveness of the management of, his, of the rental properties. Tax court found the taxpayer to be honest and granted real estate professional status. So the tax court, they're supposed to be a neutral party. They're supposed to work this out, but you have to give them really good information to get them onto your side. You have to be credible. You have to be honest. You can't just, just don't, don't flub your time. Don't record education research hours. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like that pendulum, you know, that little thing you see in law and order, you have like the little balancing thing. It's like, you got to tilt that thing in your favor very heavily. So the tax court will agree with you and doing the right things are going to put you, allow you to tilt that scale and doing the wrong things like we discussed here today will knock your credibility and tilt the scale in their, their favor. And ultimately that may be a deciding factor in whether or not they, you know, they decide with you or they side with the IRS in the tax court case. 100%. Two, two other positives. You know, sometimes people ask, well, how many rental properties do I need? And the answer is you only need one. You only need one to qualify as a real estate professional. In Smith versus Commissioner, 2014 tax court case, Smith was a disabled veteran and he had one three-unit property. He went to the three-unit property every single day to kick homeless people off the grounds. He did all the repairs, all the maintenance himself. Tenants were trashy. He was always picking up after them. IRS audited him and contested the uh, the in or he, he the taxpayer contested the end audit. But the IRS basically was just like you can't you can't be a real estate professional with one property. They actually say that in the audit technique guide. You're not going to be able to spend 500 hours on one property. That's in the audit technique guide. That's the guide that they give to all their field auditors to set the stage for when they come to audit you. And we're going to talk about that two episodes from now with how the IRS audits this stuff. But yeah, IRS audits them. Tax court listens to the case and says, yeah, Smith is a real estate professional. He's credible, he's honest, and he spends a lot of time managing that one three unit property. So you only need one property. Franco versus commissioner, similar, had two rentals. Franco was also an architect, self-employed architect, I believe, spent about 650 hours being an architect, had his own time log, his bill sheet for billing his architect hours. And he spent a ton of time managing one three unit property. 
this was a 2018 tax court case. Same, it actually came out the same week, I think, as Pormierze came out. Same sort of thing happened with Franco versus Commissioner, where the tax court pulled his credit card statements and saw, oh, your credit card statements say that you are at Home Depot and Lowe's on the same days that your time log says that you're doing repairs on your rentals. So again, just credible, trustworthy, honest. Um, that's what the tax court found. Sided with the taxpayer on that. What de- determined that he was a real estate professional. There you have it. I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, a, you know, that makes it pretty clear on, on what does count, what does not count, where you know where the gray areas, uh, where people think the gray areas are, rather, and yeah. uh, where you know really what it takes to qualify at the end of the day, and. Just one key takeaway from all the tax court case thing I think I took away from all of this when I, after, you know, going through everything, it comes down to this. You have to be credible. If you are going to put things that are going to make your case not credible onto the time log, you're going to probably lose because the IR, because the I, the tax court, they're going to look at it and look at you as an uncredible person. And to Brent's point before, they're going to continually finding ways that you're uncredible because they don't trust you anymore. And that's what they do. So yeah, you want to make sure that you have your time log, that it's reasonable, that you're following the rules, that you're materially participating in the rental operations of your properties, and you're not just making this stuff up for the purpose of trying to pass these tests because, you know, God forbid you are ever audited, you ever do make it to task court, it will come back to bite you. Yeah. And in the audits that we help with, the auditor will write in their summary opinion of the audit, um, they will write you reconstructed your time log under audit. And the whole purpose of that is just in case you go to tax court, it's automatically a knock against you. So keep a time log. It doesn't have to be extensive or anything incredible. It just needs to be a spreadsheet. It can be a, a calendar, Google Calendar, Office, whatever whatever calendar app you want to use. But it needs to show the date, the time that you spent at the rental, what rental you spent it on, and what you did. Take good notes. Take really good notes. Think of yourself as taking the standard tax court four to five years from today, how are you going to be able to recall what you did? The only way you can do that is if you take good notes. Don't take summary notes and apply it to 500 entries. We've seen those time logs. Those will get tossed. Make sure they take really good notes every single time. So for everybody, if you don't have a log, well, we went ahead and created one for you already. Now, not your log that you'd go take to the IRS, of course. No, you have to fill out the log. We created a template for you uh, that you can download so you could find that by by visiting the show notes of this episode, which can be found, you know, wherever, whatever platform you're on, go look at the show notes, click that link, head to that link, you'll be able to get that log. There you go. So next episode, we are going to go over myths and strategies related to real estate professional status. Myths are the what we've heard and disproving them. And then the strategies are, are what we tell our clients. So it, that'll be a good episode. And then the final episode in this series will be IRS audits, how the IRS steps through an audit and what they're going to be asking you. So that'll be a good one to listen to too. All right. So we'll see you next episode, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, You really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.